If you're staying in the room, I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1 if you haven't already. As field read there for us, we are in verses 19 through 24, continuing our sermon series as we journey verse by verse through this letter. Uh, We're working through Philippians to explore one basic idea, and it's that we should be more joyful, period. As Christians, we should be more joyful. As a church, we should be more joyful. Joy should be seen and joy should be felt. Joy should be a common experience. It should be the culture of our church, joy. And and when we say that, we mean joy, not superficial cheeriness. Um, We're not saying, as we call you to joy each week for the next three months, we're not saying that there isn't a place for lament or sorrow or grief in your, li- in your personal life or in our church even, collectively, corporately. We know from the book of Ecclesiastes that there is a time for everything under the sun. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Now what we are contending and emphasizing for the first few months of this year is that there is a kind of joy that we can have in all of those times. That's what's so radical about Paul's theology of joy in Philippians. In times of weeping and mourning, we can rejoice. In times of laughing and dancing, we can rejoice. This is a surprising joy. And, and as we walk through this, if all of this in the equipping class and in, in our sermons as we're focusing on joy, if all of it sounds like a long shot to actually be a real practical part of your life where you can genuinely be joyful in the worst that this world has to offer, if that just seems impossible to you, that's because the world we live in is so joy averse. And so we need to admit that on the front end. There are so many reasons to not be joyful. So many reasons. We could, we, we could spend all morning listing them off. But one of them in particular that gets us every time is uncertainty about the future. Uncertainty about the future. It is like a wet blanket that is thrown on our joy. It is literally a killjoy. Even when things are really good, even, even if you're just like, you know, as I look at life right now, I got no problem, nothing's really going wrong, I'm, I'm in good health, our family's doing well, everything seems great, uncertainty about the future can creep in and, and just drown out all of those positive things. And when you experience something good, you can make it negative because of your uncertainty about the future. So think about it, you get a promotion at work. That's great, right? New responsibilities, Uh, a raise most likely, but then you start to think about the future of that, that you're uncertain about. Oh man, I'm sure now he only gave me this promotion so that, you know, he could just heap on future responsibilities on me. What have I signed up for here? I don't even really know. Or, Or you worry 
I've got this new responsibility now, but am I going to be able to live up to it? Am I going to meet the expectation? And so it steals your joy in getting a promotion because you're uncertain about what the future holds. Because in truth, you don't know. You don't know. It could be just exactly as you worry it will be, or it could be far better or far worse. You're uncertain. You, You have a baby. You have a baby. You give birth. And you're so excited. What a gift of joy. What negative thing could possibly come along with that? Well, as soon as you start thinking about the future and you're uncertain, you don't even know what you don't know, right? About how to take care of this, of this child. And, you know, what are the next five years look like? And, you know, this doctor's about to come. Even when you're in the hospital, the doctor's going to come in and check him out. I hope everything is okay. What if he says there's something wrong with the baby? What are we going to do? And you start to worry and it steals your joy in the child. You're, you're getting married. You remember, for those of us that are married, do you remember as you were getting married? And you're so excited. Everyone's so happy for you, and, they're, and you're excited. But then you start to think about the future, and you wonder, you wonder if your marriage will turn out like your parents. And you're afraid of that. It steals your joy in your spouse. Uncertainty about the future is a dark cloud that hovers over even our most joyful moments in life. The Apostle Paul in this text shows us how we can be joyful in the face of such uncertainty. You don't know what the future holds and that scares you and that that keeps you from being happy in your life. Paul shows us how to get right through that. If you remember... Paul, he's writing this letter to his dear friends, his original church plant, the church at Philippi. These are the most special people to him in the whole world. And he's writing this letter to them from prison. He's in house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting trial. And he truly does not know how things are going to turn out for him. He might be released. He might remain in prison until he dies. He might be executed. But in this passage, Paul, he he sort of moves from his circumstances to the condition of his heart. And he sort of pulls back the curtain so that we can see its inner workings. And we learn that despite his uncertainty about his immediate future, whether in life or in death, Paul rejoices. There's this strange, evergreen, and peaceful contentment in Paul in this passage that I want so desperately. Do you not want this? In life or in death, I'm good. Whatever comes, difficult, easy, fruitful, or the end of my ministry forever, I'm good. I rejoice. Where does Paul's joy come from? Where does it come from? How is he so confident? How how can he face impending death with happiness in his heart? How can he do it? How can he be so confident that more joy is going to come? You notice what he says at the end of verse 18? At the end of verse 18? He says in verse 18, I rejoice. But then he says right at the end of it, yes. And I will rejoice. How can he be so confident that more joy is in front of him, even when he doesn't even know what the morning is going to bring? But he's confident that joy is, is in his future. 
Uh, Here's what I want to show you. I want to show you two things from this passage that we need in order to be joyful when thoughts about the future's uncertainty start to set in. We need two things. First, we need a certain hope for the future. So you're uncertain. You're uncertain about what's going to happen in your life. What we need more than anything else is a certain hope. And second, the second thing we need, we need this surprising mindset that we find in Paul. So we need a certain hope for the future. We need a surprising mindset for the present. Let's, let's talk about this certain hope first. Now, in verse 18, I want you to look in verse 18. Um, this verse serves as a bridge between last week's passage and this week's. It's a bridge between Paul's description of his circumstances and his description of the condition of his heart. So in the passage before, Paul's telling the Philippians of everything that's happening to him. I'm in prison. Uh, there are people who are opposing me. Uh, but I rejoice in the fact that the gospel's going forth. And then now he's taking us into the inner workings of his heart to reveal how he's responding to all of this. So in light of the circumstances of imprisonment and opposition, he says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And then, I love this, almost as if he's processing all of, all of his, his emotions and his heart and his feelings in writing, he reveals the condition of his heart. He says at the end here, uh, only that Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. And do you see how he's just still processing? He says, yes. I rejoice. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. Okay? Um, Paul's showing us that his joy is so much deeper than his present circumstances. He can rejoice right now in the gospel advancing, however it advances, as long as it's the true gospel, whether it's through people who love me or people who hate me, as long as it advances, I can rejoice in that right now. But he's also confident in this future joy that's going to come to him. I rejoice and I will rejoice. Now, what is Paul so confident that he will be rejoicing in? And this is where he gives us a long answer in verses 19 through 20. This is what he says. So going back to the end of verse 18, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Why? What what in? He says, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What's Paul saying here? Well, he's saying that he rejoices in the knowledge that his suffering will turn out for deliverance or salvation. You see, he says, I, I rejoice for I know that, and then skip over the, the supportive uh, phrases here that we'll get to in a minute. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. This, his current situation, his imprisonment, the opposition he's facing, the suffering he is enduring. It is going to turn out. The end of this story for me is deliverance. It is salvation. So essentially, Paul is teaching us here that we can be joyful 
in our most two or our two most basic and ultimate future conditions. You can be joyful if your future includes more life, and you can be joyful if your future includes death. That's, that's, that's essentially what he's saying here. I know, regardless of, regardless of the outcome, I know that I will be saved. Salvation, deliverance is awaiting me. And this, this is amazing, because Paul has no clue what his immediate future holds for him. And yet he has this just utter confidence, this utter confidence that he will be saved, that he will be delivered, having no idea what's going to happen in the morning. He's just sitting in prison. He's waiting for other people to decide his immediate future for him. He'll either be released or he'll be executed or, you know, something else will happen. Maybe he'll be transferred. He has no idea. There's no, there's no way for him to know exactly what's going to happen. He doesn't even know when that decision is going to be made. This uncertainty about the future that so often produces anxiety and fear in our hearts, it was an occasion for reflection for Paul. He takes the time and he says, in light of all of that, I can still glorify Christ. I can still honor him in my body, whether through life or through death, I can honor him and I can rejoice. Paul rejoiced in an uncertain, immediate future for one reason, because of a certain hope that he had in an eternal future. This, you, see, you see how it's functioning here. He rejoices, not because he has heard a special word from the Lord that, Paul, the prison doors are going to open. By the way, he was rescued from prison before. That, that's happened before. It's not like the, the Lord could not have done that. But that's not what's at play here. Paul's not saying, yeah, I'm confident that I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be saved. I'm just sitting here waiting on God to you know, uh, release me from prison right now. It's going to happen. That's, that's not what he's confident in. He has no clue what his immediate future holds. He is utterly confident in his ultimate eternal salvation and deliverance. He is looking forward beyond his immediate circumstances to the day when Christ himself will be his reward, this deliverance, this salvation that he has. So it seems clear to me that our joy is tied less to our circumstances and more to our perspective. This is what's functioning in Paul. He's not working to try to change his circumstances so that he can be happier. He's saying, no, I, I am rejoicing in the fact of my circumstances because of my perspective. I, know, I don't know what's happening tomorrow, but I know what's happening 10,000 years from now. So he's able to rejoice, no matter the outcome. If he's released, joy. If he's given a death sentence, joy. And the beauty here is that you and I have access to this same joy. I promise I wouldn't be pushing us and calling us to rejoice in the Lord if I didn't think it was possible for us. Sometimes I would love to be able to say, hey guys, we're off the hook. Like, I know it's really hard to pursue joy in your life, but you actually don't have to worry about it. Like, if it comes, it comes. If not, don't worry about it. Like, because this was something that was just reserved for apostles. So, you know, the apostle Paul, he was able to rejoice like this because of his special status and his special role in the kingdom of God. And for the rest of us, like, that's just not, that's just not possible. We can't get there. I wish I could do that sometimes because it's difficult to pursue joy in a, in a world of so much sorrow and pain and anguish. But we have access to the same joy. 
And I'm confident that we can experience this same joy because it is ordinary Christian joy. And do you know how I know that? I know that because Paul's joy is rooted in a certain future that we share with him. His future is our future. His hope is our hope. Now, what kind of eternal future are we hoping in? What lies ahead of us? What was Paul gazing into that allowed him and empowered him to be able to take a deep breath and be content and peaceful and rejoice in such trying, difficult, uncertain circumstances? How was he able to do it? What did he look at that just gave him that sense of peace? Deliverance from Jesus. Here are just a few things that he was gazing into. Paul was gazing into a world in which Jesus saves us from sin. And when Jesus returns on that day, we will be fully delivered from the penalty of sin. We are right now by trusting in Jesus. You you are delivered from sin's penalty. There's no condemnation. Jesus has fully borne the wrath of God in your place. But on that day, you will realize it fully. You know what that means? On that day, there will be no more feelings of guilt. The guilt that you feel, that you still harbor in your heart, that keeps you from being able to truly be happy because you even feel guilty about being happy because of the things that you've done. Paul was looking forward to that day of deliverance where we will be fully delivered from the penalty of sin and those feelings of, of guilt because Christ has fully satisfied the wrath of God in our place. And on that day of deliverance, we will fully realize it. And we will fully experience it. Jesus has saved us from sin. He saved us also from sin's power. Right now, we continue to face temptation. We do. You become a Christian, temptation doesn't go away. You're tempted to to sin against the Lord. You have thoughts you wish you didn't have. You commit actions you wish you didn't commit. You're at war with yourself. You have bad desires, you have good desires. They're fighting against one another as a believer. It's frustrating, isn't it? We will one day be fully delivered from sin's power. One day, one day we will have a full realization of what it means to be free from sin. It's true of you now. It's true of you right now. You have been set free from the power of sin. But in this world, it's difficult to really realize that. And it takes time and we're growing into it. But on that day, it'll be fully realized deliverance from the power of sin. Do you know what else Paul was looking into? He was gazing into? That we will one day be delivered from the presence of sin. It will just be gone. It will be gone. All sin, all all of the, the horrible effects of sin will be no more. Because on that day of deliverance, it will be tossed into a lake of fire. There will be no more sin. And so Paul is sitting in this prison cell and he is gazing into the deliverance that is his in Christ. 
And he's able to look beyond his current circumstances and say, if I have more life, I'm one step closer to that day. And if I am killed, I immediately get to experience all of this wonderful deliverance that is mine in Jesus. Jesus has saved us from sin. Jesus has saved us from death. He has delivered us. So if death comes, it doesn't put an end to us. It ushers us immediately into the presence of God. Death does not conquer us anymore. It has been vanquished. And Jesus has saved us from everything that is wrong with the world. One day we will be delivered from all disease and all disaster of every kind and all decay. One day we will be delivered from all sadness and all sorrow and every tear will be wiped away. And one day we will be delivered from all that plagues us in this life, whatever we could name. Whatever gives us grief and sorrow and pain and anguish, it will be gone. There will be full deliverance. And this is Paul's hope. And it is certain. It is certain. We will be delivered. You need to look forward to this day. We will be delivered into resurrected bodies in a fully restored and renewed world of splendor and beauty and wonder at every turn. Just imagine this for a second. Just one second. Close your eyes if it helps you. When you die in Christ, when you die in Christ, what happens to you? Have you thought about this in a while? What happens when you die in Christ as a Christian? You will immediately be in the presence of God at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then, one day, when Christ returns, if you die in Christ, you will actually receive a glorified, resurrected body that will never fail you that will never become frail, it will never become sick. And if you can believe, this is the beauty of this, this is why Paul's joy is available to us, because Paul's hope is our hope. Because if you can believe that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross and was raised from the dead, then you can believe that this future deliverance is not a pipe dream, but a certain hope. This future is as certain for you as any painful circumstance that you may be facing this very moment. This eternal perspective gives us new eyes to see every painful and difficult circumstance that we face in life. It empowers us and frees us up to rejoice no matter what comes. It frees us from that strange guilt that we feel of being happy when so much is going wrong in the world. Now listen, this was Paul's hope, which fueled his joy. But Paul's hope for the future was not an excuse to check out on life. You just look forward to glory, you know? And so that day is going to be so great, everything around me right now just doesn't matter that much. Let me just block it out. That's, that's not what Paul was doing. He, he, this wasn't his way of numbing himself to his pain. And he doesn't create some kind of nihilistic Christianity in which nothing in life matters now because of our great hope later. No, he doesn't pretend 
that this perspective makes life easy. And this is so encouraging to me. He did not come to this perspective alone. Do you see what he says? Paul's joy in life and death, it was not automatic. It didn't come easy to him and it didn't just come on his own. He needed help. And we need help. If we're going to have this kind of perspective on our circumstances, on an uncertain future, to have certain rock bed hope, we can't just develop that on our own. There were two factors that helped Paul and will help us hope in the future and rejoice in the present. And the first is the power of prayer. And the second is the help of the Spirit, and they go hand in hand. Notice what he says in verse 19. How does he know? How does he know that his current situation is going to turn out for ultimate salvation and deliverance? How is he able to have that kind of certain hope? He tells us, I know that, how? Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, now that, that is both encouraging and convicting. Paul says it was through the prayers of the Philippian church that he hoped in his future deliverance. So it's encouraging on the one hand. Listen, if you're skeptical that you could ever actually experience joy when you think about an uncertain future or you're in a difficult situation, you're half right. You're half right. You can't by yourself. You, 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 can't, you can't do it by yourself. Your joy depends on the prayers of those sitting around you this morning. Those sitting in front of you, those sitting beside you, those sitting behind you. You need their prayers if you are going to have this kind of joy. And your prayers for the people sitting around you will create joy in their hearts. Have you ever thought about ministering to your brothers and sisters in this church in that simple way? Praying for their joy. Taking, taking someone that's in your life group or just someone you talked to this morning at church and maybe tonight before you go to bed, you pray, Father, would you give them a keen awareness of the hope that is theirs in Jesus this week? Would you help them to understand what their future is in Christ? And would you give them your joy? What if we prayed for each other in that way? Because Paul says the only way I'm able to come to this perspective is you prayed for me. And we think prayer is just, you know, oh, just a little spiritual exercise, just not that big of a deal. And all of our events and all of our ministries and all the things we're doing, that's where the meat of what it means to be a church is. And Paul says, I would, I, I would not be as hopeful or as joyful if you didn't pray for me. Don't belittle the power of prayer. One, one commentator that I read, he, he, he put it like this. Even Paul's personal growth, his own sanctification does not take place in isolation from the support of the church. It is indeed a sobering thought that our spiritual relationship with God is not a purely individualistic concern. And that's, that's very true. As we pray for one another, we see here too that the Spirit comes as an advocate, as a helper, as a comforter, to bring peace and joy and comfort to our hearts. So here's what I would encourage you to do. Look around this room. Take a moment. It'll be awkward. I know it's okay. The awkwardness actually wears off in about two seconds. So just look around the room. 
okay? Just look around. Hey, there we go. We did it. Look around. You see, you see somebody? All right, now pick one person and stare at them for five seconds. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but as you look around the room, the first person you noticed, maybe write their name down and pray for them later today. You don't have to make a big thing out of it. You don't have to send them a big email or a message letting them know every single thing you prayed for them. Just do it. That's why it says it's, it's through your prayers and the, and the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit that we are able to have hope that fuels joy no matter what we're facing. The most important question here for the sake of joy in your life today, though, is do you have a certain confidence in future salvation? Do you have a certain hope in the deliverance that is to come ultimately in Christ? All right, certain hope. We need it if we're going to be joyful. One other thing we need, we need a surprising mindset for the present. And I want you to feel the weight of surprising because Philippians 1.21 is a verse that if you grew up in church at all, you probably memorized at some point. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, you see it a lot of places, you've heard it a lot, and so it's easy to take it for granted. I, we need to appreciate this is a counterintuitive mindset. This is, it, it is strange. And our familiarity with this verse may work against us in that we don't feel the surprise of this mindset. But, but I want to show it to you. So Paul's eternal perspective gave him a new mindset for the present. So he has this eternal mindset that helps him rejoice. Okay, if, if death comes, if life comes... I'm good because I know I have future deliverance that's coming in Jesus. And, and that, that future mindset affected his immediate mindset, how he's viewing things that are right in front of him. This is the practical side to Paul's joy. So we, we saw why we should rejoice in life or death. We have certain hope. Now we're going to see how we can rejoice in life and death. Paul gives legs to his theology. So let's, let's look at it. He's joyful in life and death because he had developed a Christ-centered mindset for his life. And th this is something that we need to come to terms with. Joy, if you're going to actually practically be more joyful, not just agree, I know, I need to be happier. You're right. Like, Christians should be happy and joyful. I'm with you. But to actually put it into practice and do the hard work of changing your, your habits, the habits of your mind, so that you can be more joyful. We have to understand from the jump that joy is largely determined by our mindset. Your, your joy, the, your, your happiness level within your heart is largely determined by how you view the world and how you think about the things that are happening to you. And that's what we're learning in our equipping class. The way we think about what happens to us impacts our happiness more than what actually happens to us does. So we ask, how can Paul be so happy when he's in such a scary and uncertain situation? And we put ourselves in Paul's shoes, or maybe we just think about the trials that we're currently facing, and we wonder how in the world we could actually be joyful. And the answer comes that he had this mindset that centers his life on Jesus. The way Paul thought about what was happening to him allowed him to be joyful despite 
what was happening to him. So in our class, we learned a a six-step exercise to, to help us think through the things that are happening to us. Because when something happens to you, and it's concerning, it causes you to worry about the future and whatever, whatever it is that happens to you. Our, our thoughts and our feelings and the, the actual facts of what's happening, they all get blended together. And it just creates this whirlwind of, of anxiety. When in reality, what we need to be doing is separating those things out. Okay, what's happening? What's the, what is the raw data? What's happening to me? What do I think about it? How do I feel about it? Can I change anything about it? Okay, so he, he takes us through six steps in, in the book written by David Murray. And I actually want to walk you through how we can see some of these steps functioning in Paul's heart here in Philippians 1. So let's ask these six questions. Question number one, what are the facts? What are the facts? That's the first question that we're learned or that we're taught to well, learned. Well, am I in Eastern Kentucky again? Learned him real good. Um, so... We, <laughs> the first question that we're taught to ask is, what are the facts? Well, what are the facts of the situation that Paul's in? Paul is in prison. Paul is facing opposition. Paul is awaiting trial that will in some way, at some time, determine his future. Those are the facts of his situation. Okay? Question number two. What does Paul think about the facts? Well, we don't, we don't know what he originally, we know what he wrote down, but we don't know what he originally thought about it. What would you think? Maybe just something as simple as, I have no idea what's going to happen to me, and, I'm, and I, 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 I'm, I have no information, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to me next. Because again, we can't talk about feelings yet. We have to, what do you think? What do you think? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think. Okay? Question number three, how did he feel about the facts? Again, we don't know what his initial feelings were. We don't know. What would you be feeling if you were in a situation similar to Paul's? Maybe you are in a situation sort of like Paul's where you feel just trapped by the moment. And you have no idea what's coming next. Well, fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what I don't know. Maybe sadness. Maybe Paul felt sadness about the possibility of never seeing his friends again. Maybe he was just worried about the future of the churches that he planted. All those things are plausible. The next question we're taught to ask is, can we change the facts? Can you change anything about it? His answer, absolutely not. He cannot change the fact that he is in prison. And then the next question we're taught to ask is, can we change the way that we think about the facts? And the answer to that is yes. And we see Paul do it right here. We see him do it. He at least changes from how we might typically think about the facts. Look what he says. With the help from prayer and the Spirit, Paul is able to say, whether in life or in death, Christ can be glorified in me. So if I survive this situation, it will be for the good of God's people because my ministry will bear more fruit. If I don't survive this, it will be for my immediate good because I will be in the presence of Jesus. That's his new mindset. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So that's, that's now his funnel for how he's seeing, how he's thinking about his imprisonment. So now what does he feel? This is why he's able to say, I rejoice. He doesn't rejoice in the fact of his imprisonment. He doesn't rejoice in the fact that he's, he is likely going to die. He's able to rejoice in the fact that in life or in death, he's going to be okay. 
He's at peace. He's content with whatever happens next. He can be happy in God because no matter what happens, God will be glorified. He'll either bear more fruit in his ministry or he will be with Jesus. Now the key to this whole perspective is found in verse 20 where Paul talks about the glory of Christ. Look what he says. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. His hope for future deliverance is supported here by his desire for Christ to be glorified, for Christ to be magnified or honored. The guiding ethic of his life was to do everything to the glory of Christ. And so Paul reflects on this life ethic and he sees that he can glorify and honor Christ whether he continues in ministry or he dies. And this is a powerful perspective. When we make it our aim to magnify or honor Jesus, and then we realize that we can magnify and honor him in both life and death, then we realize that nothing can steal our purpose and nothing can steal our joy. John Piper, um, he he seems to see it this way. Paul's hope-fueled joy in life and in death is the means of his glorifying Christ. Meaning that when Paul rejoices in Jesus as his supreme treasure, Jesus is magnified and honored and and glorified in his life. So Paul expects to not be ashamed of his weakness and suffering, but instead he expects to courageously rejoice in Jesus, whether in life or death, through which Jesus will be honored. Okay, so this is actually a common experience for husbands and wives in healthy marriages. When you go through unimaginably trying times as a couple, when, when you face horribly difficult circumstances, and there, it is a time for mourning, it is a time for weeping, and yet, and yet, you still rejoice in each other. There's no joy to be found in the circumstances that you're in. It's just pain. It's just sorrow. It's just sadness. But when it comes to one another, you find deep pleasure in each other. You still find so much joy. When that happens, you are honoring one another. That person, if I hear that story from a couple, that, those people, if, if a husband's telling me this story about his wife and how much, how much he loves her and how much joy he finds in her, and I see how many hard things he's going through, guess who looks really good in that situation? His wife. She's magnified. She's honored. And the same is true of Jesus. No matter what we go through, when our joy is in him, when we're in a situation where there seems to be no joy to be found, he is magnified. And this surprising mindset is beautifully and powerfully described in one simple sentence. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One perspective with two parts. Death is gain. Christ is life. And when, if we adopt this mindset, joy is possible in the face of life or death. Death is gain. Um, we don't like to do this, but we need to think about death for a second. We don't talk about it often, and that's okay. But sometimes we need to talk about it. 
And you almost, you almost feel this weird, like, superstitious, like, you don't want to say it because you don't want to make it true. And so we avoid thinking about it at all. Some of us could die this year. And that's not fun to say. And that's not fun to think about. But it's true. Some of us could very well be sick right now and not know it. And that's scary. And that's frightening. And that's unnerving. But the truth is, we never know when God will take us. We don't know. Regardless of when, regardless of how, unless Jesus comes back first, we're all going to die. No amens on that one. I hear. Okay. It's true. Paul says, I want Jesus to be magnified in my life and in my death. How can Jesus be magnified in his death? For to me, to die is gain, Paul says. This mindset is so counterintuitive. Think about that. To die is gain. That makes no sense. To die is gain. Death is loss. Loss. Like I said, get uncomfortable for a minute and think about it. When you die, you lose everything on the planet. Everything. All your dreams that you had for life are gone. Your wife, your husband, gone. Your kids, gone. Your friendships, gone. Your retirement, all those great future plans that you had, gone. Isn't there this brutal finality that, that comes with death? You know it. If you've grieved any loved one who has died, you know the loss that comes with death. And Paul says, death is gain. This is Paul's mindset. You stare the loss of everything you've ever known and loved in this world right in the face. And what you realize in that moment of your death is all you're left with is Jesus. That's it. That's all you're left with. You lose everything else and you're left with Jesus. And Paul's mindset is gain. Gain. That's how he's able to rejoice when life gets hard. That's how he's able to rejoice when he doesn't know what the immediate future holds for him because he's able to look at the future loss of every single thing that's near and dear to him except Jesus and say, this is gain. But the second aspect of this mindset keeps us from wishing for death. Because when you think about the future that awaits you, it's so much better than what you're experiencing right now. It's so much better. It's so superior. Paul himself, he's even like, hey, there's this tension here. I don't know what I want more. To, to die now and meet Jesus or to keep on living? Like, 
Ask me tomorrow, like I'm not sure today. But rejoicing in the face of death, and we need to be abundantly clear about this, rejoicing in the face of death does not mean we are supposed to rejoice in death itself. We have to draw that line and we have to make that distinction. When you attend a funeral, you should cry. You should grieve. Death is loss, though death is gain. We don't rejoice in death itself. Jesus himself, at Lazarus' tomb, what does he do? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus what? Wept. He was angry at the fact of death itself. So we don't rejoice in the fact of death. We don't rejoice in death. This is important because for some of us, life is so hard that we imagine death would be better. And that's not a Christian understanding of death. We can rejoice in the face of death because our joy is in Jesus, not in death. And if our joy is in Jesus, if he is the supreme treasure of our hearts, then we can rejoice in the face of life no matter how difficult it becomes. And that's why Paul says, for to me, not only is death gained, but Christ is life. To live is Christ. While it's better for me to be with Christ, Paul says he's torn because it's for the good of others and the glory of God that he keeps on living. Don't you love how others-focused this mindset is? Paul cares about two things more than anything else in the world, the glory of God and the good of other people. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means more fruitful labor for me. He goes on to say, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So even when we're uncertain about our future, we know that as long as we have breath in our lungs, as long as the Lord continues to give us life, we can pour our lives out for the good of other people. This is so empowering. To live as Christ is a mindset that helps us keep serving, keep loving, keep sacrificing, keep giving, keep comforting, keep going with the gospel. No matter how our circumstances change, your lot in life, it might change. It may look different now than it did 10 years ago, and it may look different 10 years from now than it does now. But as long as you have life, you have purpose. To live is Christ. When life is hard, it is so easy for us to become spiritually and emotionally paralyzed. How easy would it have been for Paul to just spiral out of control in prison there and just, just go insane? And it's so easy to think that you have nothing worthy to offer your family or your friends or your church. We can lose our sense of purpose whenever life is really hard. And we think that when we face something hard, that our ordinary day-to-day responsibilities just aren't that important anymore. Have you ever experienced that? You go through something that's really difficult and it, it captures all of your attention. And so when you think about just investing in your children or your spouse or your friends, it just doesn't seem that important anymore. That's not Paul's mindset. He is confident that the Philippians need his ongoing ministry. And I don't think this knowledge is based on his special status as an apostle. It's based on his ordinary status as a Christian. I truly believe that he knows he will continue to rejoice no matter how hard his life continues to be because he knows this deeply spiritual reality that his life is Christ. So long as he has breath, he has a reason to keep going. He can glorify God in prison or out of prison, among friends or among enemies. So life is is difficult. 
But it will remain true that it is for the benefit of your friends, your church, your spouse, your children, for you to keep living, to keep going, to keep pressing on. Why? Not because you are a spiritual rock star, all right? I'm not just saying it to you guys because it's like, well, I can say that this morning because everybody in this room, they just are so abundantly gifted and can do so many things to benefit the kingdom and all this. That's true not because of some super spiritual giftedness. It's true because you are in Christ and Christ is your life. This mindset is freedom and power for joy no matter what you're facing and no matter what lies ahead. Um, I'm going to invite the worship team to, to come up, and I want to ask you a couple questions as we close. Uh, joy, we're seeing, is possible when life is uncertain. Whether in life or in death, we can rejoice. And this joy, it comes from a certain hope in our future Christ-purchased deliverance. And it is developed through a surprising Christ-centered mindset that says, no matter what happens, Jesus is everything to me. So the ultimate question for you to unlock joy in your life is this. Is Christ all in all to you? Is he supremely satisfying? Is he enough? Or is there something else in your life that you feel you must have in order to be happy. For Christ to be your life, for you to have the mindset to live as Christ and to die as gain, there can be no room for idols. No room. An idol is anything that if you lost it, you would feel that you would lose yourself. And we, we create idols when we turn good things into ultimate things. Those idols must be smashed if we are to develop the kind of joy that can withstand the uncertainties of life. When Christ is enough for you, when he is your life, when he is the ultimate source of your joy, you can face the worst life has to offer, even death itself.